Welcome to the Quasi Science Report. Hi, and welcome to episode three of the Quasi Science Report. You're listening to Tanya Faber. I am the senior science reporter for the Sunday Times and Times Live. Today, I'm going to be taking us on a journey through the experience of a lupus sufferer. Her name is Daniela Jan, and more than being a lupus sufferer, she is a lupus warrior. She is somebody who just has such an amazing way of taking you into the experience of what she has gone through. I met her recently on a webinar that was organized by the health sciences faculty at UCT. And I was blown away by the way she's able to explain what the disease is all about and what she has experienced. Then in the second part of the podcast, I'm going to be looking at the issue of hydroxychloroquine. And that is something which has had an, a, a big impact on Daniela's life. Like many lupus sufferers around the world, she relies on hydroxychloroquine. But what we've seen recently with COVID-19 is that bad science has led to a shortage of hydroxychloroquine. So please stay tuned for part one and part two. I also just want to introduce Daniela by saying that she is originally from Botswana, but she moved to South Africa when she was very little. So she is a South African. And the disease that she suffers from is called lupus, and I'm sure you've heard about it, but it's basically an inflammatory disease in which the immune system attacks itself. So the, your, your tissue in your body starts attacking itself because it thinks that it's trying to protect you. So from a scientific perspective, that is quite mind-blowing to imagine your body turning on itself but when you hear Daniela's words and you understand what it really means in terms of a daily lived experience it is quite interesting and scary actually so here we go What really struck me about Daniela's journey when I was speaking to her was the difficulties of being a teenager anyway before something like this comes along I remember from being a teenager myself and now being a mother of teenagers. You know, your hormones are changing, you finding your place in society and in the world, you overcoming your insecurities, you sort of developing your own worldview. And then something like this comes along and it adds a whole other layer to that experience of being a teenager. So when you listen to this clip, remember that at this stage, neither she nor any of the doctors knew it was actually going on with her. I started getting symptoms from lupus in 2001 when I was in grade 10. And things such as, you know, my joints would be really, really sore. They would swell. They, I couldn't um, straighten my arms. I had a, a drama exam, I remember, a, a physical exam. And I woke up that morning and I couldn't stretch my arms. It just, it was unexplainable. It was only by the time Daniela got to university that the diagnostic pieces actually fell into place and she was diagnosed as somebody who had lupus. And she talks here about how the disease is the great imitator. So all these symptoms present that could be some other condition or disease and yet it's the lupus. And I almost got the sense when I was interviewing her that it's a type of, it's almost like a criminal that's evading the investigators. So the investigators are putting all these clues together, but it's very difficult for them to actually figure out what's going on. Yeah, but it took a good four years for the symptoms to come and go, which according to research is quite normal. So it takes four to six years for symptoms to, you know, come and go without much explanation. Um, for doctors to make a different diagnosis, which is a huge problem because 
Um, a lot, you know, lupus has been underdiagnosed because, um, as as you might well well know, it's it's a great imitator. So a lot of specialists think that it's actually another disease when it's, in fact, lupus. Then I think possibly one of the hardest parts came along, and that was when Daniela actually became psychotic as a result of her disease. Now, remember, she's experiencing all these horrible physical symptoms. It's taken years to diagnose what's actually wrong with her. She's already dealing with, you know, just the challenges of being a young person who is ill, and now psychosis comes along as well. She's such a great writer and storyteller that she was able to take this experience and write a book with a title that I absolutely love. It's called Crazy Became Me, a Looper Story. She launched it a couple of years ago in South Africa and more recently in her native Ghana a few months before lockdown. But for someone like Daniela, psychosis was literally her worst fear come to life. It, it was something that she had worried about even before she was diagnosed and that she was aware of because of what she was studying. You know, I studied psychology as well in, in um, adversity. And I remember having such, such a fear of becoming psychotic, funny enough. Um, and when it happened, it just, my world just fell apart. Then also in the mix of all these challenges is this crippling exhaustion that you feel. And then how others respond to that. So here Daniela speaks about how she just felt completely drained of energy all the time. And then that has a kind of knock-on effect because socially the way others experience you is not how you are experiencing yourself. So it's very hard for other people to understand why you're exhausted or you cancel arrangements or, you know, you don't follow through with something that you said you would do. And then I guess, you know, you start worrying about how others perceive of you. You know, you've got your whole life ahead of you. You are that young um, you know, I experienced severe depression as well and just a lot of isolation. People that, you know, it's the, I think one of the main things is that people don't understand you and they don't understand the disease. So one of the main symptoms of, of lupus is that you feel exhausted and fatigued all the time, pretty much. Okay. You are tired a lot. And it all, you know, people start to think that you're unreliable. People start to think that you're lazy. Um, you were fine one day, but the next day you were at death's door. That's just the nature of the disease. But it's, 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 not, it's not something that you can explain to someone that doesn't understand. What also really amazed me from her story as a lupus sufferer is how she and I guess other lupus sufferers have to act all the time as if everything's fine. So you put a lot of energy into covering up the fact that you're really struggling. She spoke to me about how fortunate she is to have a fantastic job at the moment that she has had for several years, and her employers are very supportive and caring, but a great many other lupus sufferers are really not in that same position. It's just really difficult to hold down a job and have employers who understand what you're experiencing. So the way she described this idea of having to act like everything's fine made me think of my earlier metaphor about how the disease itself is like a criminal that's evading the investigators. So in a sense, it's almost like because you want to appear okay in the world, because you don't want people to respond to you negatively, you almost become an accomplice to your own disease. So you yourself are trying to cover up, act like everything's fine, move along, nothing to see here, because you end up trying to compensate so that, you know, nothing will cause suspicion. You won't have people throwing criticisms at you that you're unreliable or you're always tired or whatever. 
And that must be incredibly difficult on top of everything else that you're experiencing to now try and hold it together and hide the fact that you are suffering so greatly. They don't, they don't believe you. Um, you know, it's also called the invisible disease because you look fine out, you know, on, you know, on the outside, you look absolutely fine. And so it just baffles people. They, they don't understand. And very often, you know, the, the, the conflict that, that lupus patients experience is you don't want to, you're sick all the time, but you don't want to be sick all the time. You want to look sick or complain all the time. So you, for, for a lot of the times you are covering up to, you know, up to the point where you actually fall apart and you break and it can, it can even lead to death or, you know, um, but it's just, it's just the way that, you know, the world works, I suppose, because you can't, you can't be sick all the time. You can't be needy all the time, but that's, that's how it is. You, you are, you are lethargic, you know, it also affects your, your, your memory, you know, you get brain fog. So it's just attack from every side, all, all sides. Umzanzi Celeville is filled with flavor. But you know that Or who secured the latest bag? Or just who's dripping with sauce? And who's adding the spice? Because if it's hot, then it's definitely in the cheese pot. Welcome back. You're listening to Tanya Faber in the second part of episode three of the Crazy Science Report. In our first section, we spoke to Daniela Jan, who's an inspiring lupus warrior who shared her experience with us. Now we go into the broader context that places us right here, right now in the midst of the pandemic. And it blows my mind that flawed science thousands of kilometers away can affect the life of someone like Daniela and countless other lupus sufferers across the world. But in a nutshell, this is how it all unfolded. First up, there's a highly flawed study carried out in France in March. It claims that hydroxychloroquine is effective not only in treating people with COVID-19, but even in preventing it. Now, remember that hydroxychloroquine is actually an antimalarial, but it's also relied on by countless other sufferers of lupus, of which there are about 5 million around the world, as well as other conditions like rheumatoid arthritis. A string of weird things happen that allow for the French study to be published in the first place. Only a few days pass between ethical clearance and the study actually being written up. That's highly unusual. It's bizarre. Then, only 24 hours pass between the study going out for peer review and it being rubber-stamped for publication. Any researcher will tell you that peer reviews normally take, you know, around one or two weeks at the very least. And just as alarmingly, some of the authors on the paper are also the editors of the journal in which it's published, and they don't declare this up front. So already, you know, there's a conflict of interest. The peer review has been ridiculously short, and the gap between ethical clearance and the so-called study being carried out is also very, very, very short. There are also some glaring flaws in the actual trial itself, but without the proper checks and balances in place, these do not matter, and the study gets published, which gives it a lot of credibility in the world of science. 
But then, as is often the case with medical science, it passes into the public domain, and worse, it becomes political and things snowball from there. United States President Donald Trump, who's got a vested interest in creating a sense that everything's under control because of the upcoming election, starts tweeting that hydroxychloroquine is a game changer in the fight against COVID. Then his opinion gets amplified because the real science cannot replace the bad science quickly enough. And quite soon after that, at the end of March, the Food and Drug Administration in America endorses hydroxychloroquine for emergency use from the end of March. So you can already see in that short space of time, we've gone from a highly flawed study, an endorsement by a very powerful leader in the Western world, and then you've got a rubber stamp from the Food and Drug Administration. After that, a slate of other trials are undertaken and show that the drug does not improve patient outcomes at all. And in mid-June, the Food and Drug Administration does an about turn and revokes emergency use of the drugs. So that is a huge moment in the American political landscape and also in the fight against COVID-19. You've got this drug that has been touted as the game changer, the miracle drug. You've got the Food and Drug Administration going, yes, this is brilliant. All doctors can now prescribe this for emergency use. And then 12 weeks later, you've got that same administration going, oh, no, actually, sorry, it cannot be used for emergency use. We don't actually know if it helps or not. But in the meantime, Trump has carried on endorsing it, even saying that he himself is taking it. So listen to this clip in which he speaks about his own use of the drug. And a lot of good things have come out about the hydroxy. A lot of good things have come out. And you'd be surprised at how many people are taking it, especially the frontline workers, before you catch it. The frontline workers, many, many are taking it. I happen to be taking it. I happen to be taking it. Hydroxychloroquine? I'm taking it. Hydroxychloroquine. Right now, yeah. A couple of weeks ago, I started taking it. Because I think it's good. I've heard a lot of good stories. After the Food and Drug Administration doing about turn, a couple of days later, the Henry Ford Health System in Detroit carries out what they call an observational study, which says that hydroxychloroquine does actually cut death rates. The study is highly flawed, particularly because many who got the drug who survived had also been given a type of steroid that is already known to improve patient outcomes. So already it's not a trial that you can trust. It's not a randomized controlled trial. It's preordained in a sense because the group that are getting the hydroxychloroquine are also getting steroids, which we know can save their lives. So listen here to Dr. Anthony Fauci. You probably know this, but he's been in charge of infectious disease research in America since 1984. So you can imagine all the presidents he has worked under. He explains in no uncertain terms what the problems are. And then imagine that across the globe, doctors have already gone crazy prescribing it to the eager patients. And Dr. Fauci, in the meantime, gets death threats for daring to say that he's not willing to endorse any of the trials that have taken place because they have not been scientifically valid. The Henry Ford Hospital uh, study that was published was a non-controlled retrospective cohort study uh, that was confounded by a number of issues, including the fact that many of the people who were receiving hydroxychloroquine were also receiving corticosteroids, which we know from another study gives a clear benefit in reducing deaths with advanced disease. Um, so that study is a flawed study, and I think anyone who examines it carefully 
is that it is not a randomized placebo-controlled trial. It's so statement, It doesn't matter. You can peer review something that's a bad study, but the fact is it is not a randomized placebo-controlled trial. The point that I think is important, because we all want to keep an open mind, any and all of the randomized placebo-controlled trials, which is the gold standard of determining if something is effective, none of them had shown any efficacy for hydroxychloroquine. Having said that, I will state, when I do see a randomized placebo-controlled trial that looks at any aspect of hydroxychloroquine, either early study, middle study, or late, if that randomized placebo-controlled trial shows efficacy, I would be the first one to admit it and to promote it. But I have not seen yet a randomized placebo-controlled trial that's done that. And in fact, every randomized placebo-controlled trial that has looked at it has shown no efficacy. So I just have to go with the data. I don't have any horse in the game one way or the other. I just look at the data. What I love about what he's saying is it shows his fidelity to empirical evidence. He's not saying that he will never open his mind up to the fact that hydroxychloroquine could be effective in preventing or treating COVID-19. But he's saying that until there is a legitimate trial that's been done, it is not ethical to go and promote the drug and allow people to use it or doctors to prescribe it for that purpose. But of course, by then the damage has been done, hydroxychloroquine has been selling like hotcakes, and prescription purchases rose over a thousand percent in a very short space of time after the drug was touted first by the French study and then by the Henry Ford Health System. And it's not only in America. Within a few days of the French study and Trump's endorsements, the Guardian newspaper reported that there were stockouts of the drug in several countries. Here's an extract I'll just read you from that Guardian article. It says, a stampede for an unproven cure, in inverted commas, for COVID-19 is clearing the pharmacy shelves of a medicine that is vital for up to 5 million people around the world suffering from lupus as countries bow to populist pressure. The Guardian article mentions the United Kingdom and Thailand and France, but we know that it was happening in several other countries too. So this brings us back to Daniela, sitting in South Africa. I find it painful to imagine Having to face something like this when you already have so many challenges and curveballs from being someone who suffers from a condition like lupus. Listen to how she describes the anxiety that the stockouts created for her and her fellow sufferers. It, it brought a, a, quite a bit of anxiety and, you know, anxiety causes flares. And um, so that wasn't a, a great thing. I was fortunate in the sense that my pharmacist was only out of stock for one month and that you know was is, is to say um, it's fortunate it was actually not that great because you know they were out um i've had i've spoken to patients that have, have not had it for seven months for seven months um and i'm part of a warrior group lupus warriors group. that's what we call ourselves lupus warriors <laughs> and um you know like constantly people are complaining where can i get chloroquine i can't get chloroquine from here guys I need chloroquine, I need chloroquine. We found, we found, I found that a lot of patients were just going to multiple pharmacies and they were saying, look, we, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Um, and yeah, so it caused a lot of anxiety. The terrifying mix here for me is bad science, social media that goes unchecked, political leaders with power but no integrity, and then real people on the ground who are at the mercy of all of this. 
It is so worrying and it makes me really grateful to people like Daniela who, instead of suffering in silence, actually reach out in accessible ways so the rest of us can understand the fallout of such a situation. So that brings us to the end of episode three of the Quasi Science Report. As always, I'm interested in how science affects life and life affects science. And I hope you have found it interesting to go on this journey with me. See you next time. Mm-hmm.